Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Church of God, this is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Paris. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you today, although a bit unexpected. Uh, We had to shuffle things around just a few days ago, so the conclusion of Ryan's Philippian series will wait another week, and you'll hear from me this morning. For the benefit of those of you who might not know me, my name is George Bennett, and I serve here as chair of the missions team and a small group leader and temporary elder. Please pray with me before we get started. O Lord, our Lord, blessed be your name. We praise you as the creator of all things. We praise you as the one who holds all things together. We praise you as the savior of the world. We praise you as the head of the church. We praise you as the living word. We thank you that through you we have peace with God. We thank you for the written word. We ask you to meet us here once more. We ask you to teach us here once more. We ask you to change us here once more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Between 1994 and 2009, I ran nine marathons. A few of you might find that accomplishment enviable, but I imagine some of you are questioning my sanity right now, especially if you know the history of the marathon. According to legend, the first marathon took place in 490 BC. The Greek army defeated the Persians in a battle near the city of Marathon. A 40-year-old messenger named Pheidippides ran the 25 miles from Marathon to Athens to announce the victory, after which he promptly died. (laughs) So, naturally, some people thought imitating what Pheidippides did was a good idea. When the modern Olympics were created in 1896, the planners included a 40-kilometer or 25-mile race to commemorate the event. As if 25 miles were not long enough, when London hosted the Summer Olympics in 1908, Queen Alexandria requested that the race start on the lawn of Windsor Castle, which extended the length of the race to 26.2 miles, or about 42 kilometers, which has remained the official distance since. Running 26.2 miles requires physical endurance, but it also requires mental endurance. It requires a certain attitude or perspective. Because of that, a marathon is an apt metaphor for the Christian life. 
It's a metaphor I relate to, and it's a metaphor employed in the passage we will look at today. The title of this message is Run the Race. It is about how to live life as a follower of Jesus. It is about your attitude. It's about your perspective. So if you haven't already, let's turn together to the passage Paris read a few minutes ago, the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. For anyone who might be new to the Bible, the book of Hebrews is in the New Testament. It is closer to the end than the beginning. Like many of the books in the New Testament, Hebrews was originally a letter. Unlike the other letters, though, we do not know who wrote Hebrews. Throughout history and even today, many people attribute the letter to the Apostle Paul because of the theology expressed and the extensive references to the Old Testament in it. However, Paul identifies himself in each of his other letters that we have, so it seems unusual that he would write such an important letter and not identify himself in it. Because of that, other people speculate that Hebrews was written by a close associate of Paul's. Given that the letter is addressed to Hebrew people and that much of it is devoted to showing that Jesus was the great prophet, the great high priest, and the great sacrifice, the author would seem to be a Jewish background believer. The last few verses of the book make clear that the author was familiar with Timothy and had connections to Italy. If Paul didn't write the letter, strong candidates for author would include Apollos, Silas, and Aquila. My personal favorite, though, is Barnabas. We know from Hebrews 13.22 that the letter was written to encourage the believers who read it, and Barnabas' name meant son of encouragement. Regardless of who wrote it, the letter still encourages believers today. So read with me, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let's stop right there. The word therefore is a reference to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame or the Hall of Faith. In chapter 11, the author of the letter listed many of the individuals we know from the Old Testament. The author described how these individuals demonstrated faith in God. These faithful followers of God are the witnesses who surround us. Now, I don't know if they are actually watching us from heaven. I would imagine that they are preoccupied with worshiping Jesus. They are not witnesses because they are viewing us while we run our races. They are witnesses by virtue of having borne witness to Christ during their earthly lives. Whether they are watching us or not, their example should motivate us. Some of them paid with their blood. We have a responsibility to live with a similar level of commitment. They were heroes of the faith. However, they were not heroes because their faith was so strong. They were heroes because their faith was in the God who is so strong. And our faith is in the same God. Our faith is no different than Noah's or Abraham's or Moses's. So let's continue reading verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Write this down as the first point in your notes. Run light. 
The verse commands us to lay aside two things. One is every weight and the other is sin. From a linguistic perspective, the author might be offering two descriptions of the same thing. Parallelism was a familiar technique to both Hebrew writers and readers. It isn't hard to imagine that the writer of the letter was trying to say that sin does to Christians what weights do to a runner. When we discussed this passage once at an elder board meeting, a certain former senior pastor argued that very point. Admittedly, I cannot read classical Greek or Hebrew, and I might be guilty of trying to overinterpret the metaphor, but I see the weight and the sin as two different things. As a runner, I know that weights slow me down but don't prevent me from running. However, something that clings to me can entangle me and make running impossible. So I'm going to continue as if weights are different from sin, but please know, though, that I do so cautiously. So we're commanded to lay aside weights and sin. Let's consider sin first. Sin is specific and sin is wrong. Of course, we all sin. No matter how much we want to, we cannot completely stop sinning. I think what the author means is sin patterns or sin habits. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The command is to abstain from sexual immorality. Some people do not abstain from that. They pursue it. They enjoy it. Sexual immorality is a habit for them. Such sinful habits always interfere with faith. I hope I'm not describing any of you. Engaging in something we're not supposed to do is what is known as a sin of commission. A sin of commission involves committing a sinful act. It's a violation of a negative command. It's doing what we are not supposed to do. Another example comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The command is to rejoice always. The command is to pray without ceasing. The command is to give thanks in all circumstances. If you are not a joyful person or a praying person or a thankful person, your faith will be limited. If your habit is to complain, your faith will be limited. Some people make a habit of complaining. 1 Peter 2.15 tells us, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter's exhortation is for us to do good works. Failure to do good works is also a sin. Such a failure is what we call a sin of omission. A sin of omission involves not obeying a command of God or not performing a God-honoring act. It's a violation of a positive command. It means not doing what we are supposed to do. Some people display a pattern of not doing what they are supposed to do. Just as a little bit of a tangent, the three passages I just cited all specifically identify these commands as the will of God. If you want to know God's will for your life, start with these three passages. And frankly, if I'm being sanctified, 
avoiding sexual immorality, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, and doing good works, other decisions will largely take care of themselves. <clears throat> so, back to Hebrews. We need to abandon our sinful habits and sinful patterns. But the verse in Hebrews 12 says we also need to lay aside every weight. The word translated as weight appears only once in the Bible. It means hindrance or impediment. Weights are not necessarily sinful, but they slow us down. They make running the race more difficult. They interfere with spiritual progress. And weights might even turn into sin or lead to sin later. I am a runner. As I said, I've run nine marathons and many shorter races as well. When I race, I wear shorts. I don't wear jeans. Jeans are not bad. They just make running more difficult. I wear running shoes. I don't wear heavy boots. Boots are not bad. They just make running more difficult. At major marathons, it's not unusual to see army personnel running in full fatigues and boots while wearing a full backpack or carrying an American flag. It is unusual to see those soldiers among the leaders of the race. The people who have a chance of winning a marathon don't carry any extra weight. What are weights for one person are not necessarily weights for another person. For example, marriage is usually not a weight, but it can be. The Apostle Paul was not married when he was visiting churches in Asia Minor and writing letters. Marriage at that stage of his ministry would have been a weight for him. It would have made running his race more difficult. It would have interfered with his spiritual progress. On the other hand, the Apostle Peter was married. Marriage was not a weight for him. It did not get in the way of his spiritual growth. Peter's weight was his career as a fisherman. Earning a living as a fisherman is not wrong. Peter just cannot continue in that career and grow the way Jesus wanted him to. In contrast, Paul had a career as a tent maker. His career was not a weight that he had to lay aside. Now, do not misunderstand me. I'm not telling you to divorce your spouse or quit your job. If you're already married, marriage is not a weight for you. Relationships with other people are rarely weights in this sense. More commonly, our weights are certain feelings and thoughts. For example, I used to feel sad and depressed most days. Sadness and depression are not inherently wrong or sinful. In fact, they serve a good and useful purpose. However, I was feeling sadness and depression during normal situations, even on happy occasions. I was not joyful. I was not content. I was not thankful. One Sunday in 2008, the pastor at church was teaching from John 16:22, when Jesus said, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit showed me that no one could steal my joy from me. Only I could prevent myself from experiencing the joy God gave me. I changed forever that day. I instantly felt more contentment, more thankfulness, and yes, more joy. Doubts can be weights. I used to doubt that God loves me. 
one particular answered prayer was enough to sweep that doubt away. Since then, I've grown to understand that God loves me because he is loving. That's what he does. He loves. His love doesn't depend on my lovability or my loveliness. Again, the Holy Spirit was the one who tossed that weight away from me. I was simply ready to receive his help. A memory can be a weight. It seems as though a lot of churches are populated with people who were burned in some way at a previous church. They are capable, gifted people who hold back from serving because they don't want to risk getting burned again. Anxiety and worry can be weights if they divert our attention from Christ, as Ryan taught us last week. Cultural habits can be weights. One of the many reasons having relationships with brothers and sisters from churches and other parts of the world is a blessing is because God can use those relationships to remove our cultural blinders. Expectations other people have of you can be weights. Expectations you have of other people can be weights. Comparisons to other people can be weights. Even systematic theology can become a weight if the system becomes more important than the theos. There is a critical joke or maybe a joking criticism that takes various forms that you might have heard before. For example, I've heard people say that John Calvin wouldn't be a Calvinist if he were alive today. I don't know if that's true, but I understand the sentiment. Some people strive so hard for purity in their belief that they become rigid, constantly on the lookout for wolves. The thing is, the commands of Scripture don't care what your systematic theology is. I'm not saying that systematic theology is worthless. It is actually quite worthwhile. What I am saying is that God is bigger than any system we can construct, and we need to be able to differentiate between what is essential and what is non-essential. When we elevate non-essential doctrines to essential status, we create weights that interfere with spiritual progress for ourselves and others, and we cease to be teachable. Do you have weights holding you back? Do you have thoughts or attitudes or habits that are slowing down your spiritual progress? Ask God to reveal them to you and ask him to lift them from you. And ask a brother or sister to hold you accountable. My first point was run light. The second point is run lawn. Run lawn. Let's read verse 1 all the way to the end. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author compares the Christian life to a race. This comparison is to help us understand the nature of life as a Jesus follower. Now, there are two kinds of races, sprints and distance races. Sprints finish quickly. Distance races last longer. Distance races require endurance. They require the ability to keep moving even when the muscles get tired. 
Distance races required the determination to keep running, whether uphill or against the wind. Life as a follower of Jesus is similar. There are no timeouts. At times we get tired. We get discouraged. Obeying God's commands can be hard. We might not feel like praying or reading the Bible. However, in those times, we need to keep praying and reading the Bible. We need to endure. Someone once compared endurance to fighting a gorilla. You don't fight until you get tired. You fight until the gorilla gets tired. One lesson I've learned in running is so obvious that it is easy to overlook. That lesson is that I'm only a runner when I run. Watching other runners run does not make me a runner. Running makes me a runner. At some races, the runners who finish receive a medal. The people who watch the race do not receive medals. Runners and spectators are different. Runners perform, spectators speculate. God wants every one of us to spend our energy running our spiritual race. He does not want us to remain spectators. Another lesson I've learned in running is that endurance is easier when I run with someone. When I run alone, I have no one encouraging me. No one is there to hold me accountable. However, when I run with a partner, we encourage each other. The time usually passes more quickly. We make sure that we both complete the run. The same is true for our spiritual race. Being with other believers helps. That's why we believe so strongly in small groups here at Harvest Decatur. Small groups are where the work of the church happens. Small group members hold each other accountable, pray for one another, and encourage each other. If you're not currently in a small group, I urge you in the strongest possible terms to get in one. I'd be happy to talk with you after the service about how to join. Completing a distance race also requires energy. I mentioned earlier that I've run nine marathons. I tried to run my first five marathons without eating anything during the race. I lasted just shy of three hours before I had painful cramps in my leg muscles. I had to stop running and walk. I eventually finished, but the experience was not pleasant. In my sixth marathon, I carried small pieces of food with me and ate one every 15 minutes or so. I had no muscle cramps. I ran the entire way. Feeding at regular intervals made running easier. We need regular intake of spiritual food, too. Spiritual food comes from our worship and study of the Bible. Spiritual food comes from church. You need to study your Bible and attend church regularly. We like to say that church is not the building, and that's true. But there is something that happens when God's people gather together that doesn't happen anywhere else. In Matthew 18.20, Jesus says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. God is omnipresent or present everywhere, but his presence manifests itself in a special way when believers gather together. Unless you are part of the gathering, you will not experience that particular manifestation of his presence. 
If you can't attend church every week, you should go to church as often as you can. If you can't study your Bible every day, you should study it as often as you can. Some spiritual food is better than none at all. One other note about races is that they follow a course. The author of Hebrews called it the race that is set before us. Races follow a path. The path might include uphill slopes and downhill slopes. It might include turns and bends. The course is rarely straight or smooth. There are no shortcuts. A runner will get disqualified if he strays too far from the path. In a physical race, all the runners follow the same course. In the spiritual race, each runner's course is unique, yet all the courses have the same general features. And they are all on. Sometimes the hills are so steep or the wind is so strong that you feel like quitting. When that happens, the most spiritual act you can do is to take one more step. Some of you might be running up a steep hill this week. If you are in that situation, I urge you to take one more step. Take the next one step God wants you to take. Keep taking steps until you reach the top of the hill. God will show you when you arrive there. One aspect of steep hills is that the view from the top is usually amazing. The view from the top is worth the climb. Perhaps you have wandered off course a ways. You probably didn't intend to get off track, but you did. And now you know that you, where you are is not where God wants you to be. You won't get back on course by continuing to go in the same direction you're going. You need to turn toward the course and start taking steps in that direction. You might even need another believer to help show you where the right course is and help you find your way back there. My first point was run light. My second point was run long. My third point comes from verses 2 and 3. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Write this down as the third point. Run looking. The word looking in verse 2 means fixing your eyes on. It means to focus. The key to finishing a distance race is to focus on the goal. If you focus on anything but the goal, you will get distracted and will fall out of the race. But if you fix your eyes on the goal, you will be able to keep running even when the course is hard. In 2007, I ran a marathon in Alaska as part of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society team in training. During the race, I wore a wristband with the name of a young man with leukemia. Whenever I felt tired and ready to quit, I looked at his name. I remembered that his disease was harder than any marathon. I remembered that he was probably tired too. I thought to myself, if he could get up each day, I could keep running. I kept running and I finished the race. 
What is the goal of our spiritual race? Jesus is the prize. Instead of a finisher's medal, we get to live with the Lord forever. We need to focus on Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on him. These verses tell us a few things about Jesus. For example, he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. The Greek word translated as founder does not only mean the creator. It also means pioneer. Jesus ran the race before we did. He has run the course. He has set the greatest example for us. He fixed his eyes on the joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him was the glory of God. Jesus preferred the glory of God to the shame of men. If Jesus preferred the glory of God to everything else, so should we. Jesus is not just the founder or pioneer of our faith. He is also the perfecter of our faith. That word refers to his perfect example. He showed what perfect faith looks like. That word also refers to his purifying work in our lives. Recall that God first declares us to be righteous, then he works to make us righteous. He works to make us like Jesus. Purification is a process, and purification is what our race involves. Verse 3 tells us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Jesus experienced no positive encouragement on his way to the cross. People lied about him. People falsely accused him. He was beaten. He was treated as a criminal. Most of his friends deserted him. One of his closest friends denied him three times. The government executed him in the most humiliating way known then. However, Jesus focused on the glory of God the Father. God's glory was his highest priority. When you get a taste of God's glory, two things happen. First, you want to worship God. Second, you want to share his glory with others so that they will worship him also. God commands us to look to Jesus. God doesn't command us to do something that we do naturally. For example, God does not command us to breathe. He doesn't need to. We breathe automatically. God commands us to do what does not happen naturally. Because God commands us to look to Jesus, we know that looking to Jesus does not happen naturally. Our natural instinct is to look elsewhere. Our nature is to focus on something other than the goal. The Bible calls this natural instinct of ours the flesh. Our flesh points us in the wrong direction. Satan wants us to focus elsewhere, too. Satan wants us to be distracted. He wants us to fall out of the race. Satan wants us to stop running. So both our flesh and Satan work against us. What do I look at when I'm not looking to Jesus? Most often, I focus on me. I focus on my desires. I focus on my ambitions. I focus on my plans. I pray as though God is my servant. 
I fear of failure. Sometimes I focus on my circumstances. If the circumstances are unpleasant, I worry about how long they will last. And I ask God to change the circumstances. I do not ask what he is trying to teach me. I fear the outcome. At other times, my focus is on other people. I want people to like me. I want people to compliment me. I want to please people. And I fear how people will react. When I focus on Jesus, everything changes. I pray as though I am God's servant. I ask him what his desires and his plans are. I ask God what he wants to teach me through my circumstances. I want to please him. I no longer fear. Your life as a follower of Jesus is a distance race. You need to run light, you need to run long, and you need to run looking. Before we finish, I should tell you that the outline I followed was not my own creation. Credit for the outline goes to a man named Paul Cox. I was born again as a believer in Jesus Christ during my first year of college through what was then known as Campus Crusade for Christ and is now called Crew. After I was saved, I started reading my Bible and I went through some follow-up lessons on discipleship. But I was pretty content just to be saved, and I didn't have any interest in going to weekly meetings or Bible studies. That changed during my sophomore year. I started going to the weekly large group meetings, I joined a Bible study, and I started reading Christian apologetics. When spring rolled around, some of the students from our campus went to a regional retreat with students from several other area universities. That was the first Christian retreat I ever attended. The retreat lasted from Friday evening until noon on Sunday. The speaker for that retreat was Paul Cox. I'd be surprised if any of you have heard of him, but back in 1989, he was a pretty big deal in Campus Crusade, although I didn't know that when I went to the retreat. He had a Master of Divinity degree from Trinity International University, and he was working on a PhD in philosophy. He lived in Southern California and taught seminary classes. When he gave invited talks, he usually spoke at larger conferences or campus crusade staff training. Somehow he was booked for a weekend retreat in Ohio. At any rate, he delivered four talks at the retreat. I felt a spiritual momentum that increased with each of the talks he gave. In fact, next to the day I was saved, those three days at that retreat might be the most pivotal in my Christian life because they set me on a higher trajectory. I have vivid memories of sitting in that retreat center and listening to his talks. The third of his four messages was from Hebrews 12 and followed this outline. I have prayed it as a prayer request for myself hundreds of times since I heard it, and I hope it will become a prayer request of yours as well. I'll close with this. I mentioned earlier that I ran a marathon in Alaska with team and training. I actually caught a glimpse of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 while I was there. The race was in the city of Anchorage, and the start was on the outskirts of town, 
more than half of the course was outside the city. The final few miles were in the city. And after running through a park, we ran up a residential street, made a couple of turns, and finished on a high school track. As I approached the track, I noticed that an announcer was identifying finishers over a loudspeaker for the benefit of people sitting in the bleachers. When I reached the track, the only other runner nearby was another member of team in training. Members of team in training wear purple jerseys. As the other runner and I came down the straightaway, instead of announcing our individual names, the announcer reminded the crowd that the runners in purple jerseys had raised money to fight leukemia in order to participate in the race. What followed was a loud and enthusiastic round of applause from the people in the bleachers. The applause gave us a shot of adrenaline that helped us finish well. When I reflected on those moments after the race, I realized that I had been encouraged to finish my endurance race by witnesses who identified me according to my uniform. Isn't that what Hebrews 12 is describing? We believers wear a uniform. We are clothed in Christ, and we are motivated to endure until the race is finished. As we prepare to finish and Ryan comes forward, I ask everyone else to close your eyes and bow your head. In the privacy of your own heart and mind, ask God to show you what weights you need to lay aside. Ask God to show you what sin habits you need to lay aside. Ask God to give you the courage to lay them aside. Ask God to give you endurance. And ask God to reveal himself to you. With your eyes still closed and your head still bowed, pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you that you have called us to run the race. We thank you that you have determined the course. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have run the race already. We thank you for your example. We thank you for the example of other saints. We thank you, Lord, that you purify us. We look to you as our goal. We look to you to take away our fear. We pray that you show us what weights and sins we must lay aside. Help us to run light. We pray that you give us endurance. Help us to run long. We pray that you reveal yourself to us. Help us to run looking. We pray in the name of the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.